All right. Good morning. Let's uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Here. God, our Father and Protector, without you nothing is holy, nothing has value. Guide us to everlasting life by helping us to use wisely the blessings you have given to the world. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. All right. Carol asks for the microphone. Hey, I didn't think the vicar would want to announce this, so the outreach donation this week is going to to the Bukes. And we wish them well on their journey and Godspeed. So thank you very much. So be generous. Uh, talk about on-the-job performance reviews, right? This is, whew, hope it's a good one. <laughs> thank you very, very, very much, Carol. <laughs> I appreciate it. All right, let's take a look at Colossians. <clears throat> this, is, this will be the second to last week of our study of Colossians. And um, we'll see how far we get today. I wanted to do something right off the bat. Well, okay, a couple things right off the bat. Um, first of all, it's been a real joy to get to teach this Bible class this summer. Um, this is a lot of fun. Hopefully it's been fun for you. It's given me a chance to um, investigate Colossians in a way that I haven't and I haven't and wouldn't otherwise. Um, getting to teach it is, is, is very beneficial for me, and I hope that, uh, that, that you've learned some new insights about Colossians along the way as well. So with that, I hope everybody has the, uh, the handout for today. And on that front page, as always, you have the outline, and then there's this little review. And I want to just read, read this review for you again. Much of it is familiar, what we've covered so far, but then um, I want to talk a little bit about that word holiness, which comes near the end. So... To this point, let's see, through about uh, Colossians 2, verse 19, um, this is what we've heard so far. So Paul has been praying, giving thanks for the faith and the love of the Colossians, which springs from hope, and he prays that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and give thanks for the gifts of the Father in Christ, who is firstborn of creation and firstborn of the dead and has reconciled you, the Colossians, for whom Paul suffers as a minister, a steward of the mystery, which is Christ. And then in chapter 2, verse 6, we, we hit this turning point where Paul's admonition, his message um, of what he wants the Colossians to learn and do, follows. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, according to Christ, as qualified heirs, as forgiven all trespasses. Holiness is not a matter of food or drink or self-made worship and visions, those things are a shadow of Christ, a shadow of the mystery that was to be revealed. And I thought about this uh, this week as, we was, as I was looking at um, what comes next in Colossians, and I think it'd be helpful to spend a little time sort of reframing what we've done so far in terms of this notion of holiness. Um, I give you, let's see, on the, the back page, the last page, the back of, the, of page two, a quotation here by John Kleinick, who generally has the answers to just about every question we can come up with. Um, so know what he says in this first paragraph, and I'm just going to read this for you. Um, this, I think, will help put some things in perspective. Kleinick says in this article, Sharing in God's Holiness, the pagan nations which surrounded Israel believed that there were many sources of holiness because there were many gods and semi-divine beings. Here you might, rem you might think what those elemental principles were. 
the, the elementary, elementary principles that, they, uh, that people were potentially misled by. There were many gods and semi-divine beings. Each gave access to some part of the supernatural world and to some portion of its power. But all this was repudiated by the Israelites. So here's, this is Old Testament we're talking about here. In fact, they were commanded to desecrate and defile much of what their neighbors held holy. They believed that the Lord their God alone was holy. Okay, I'll stop there. So the, so the idea here is that um, the question at stake is how do you become holy? Where, how, do you, how do you obtain holiness? And as Kleinick no notes, um, there are all kinds of ideas about how you can obtain holiness. But if you confess that God, the God of Israel, he alone is holy, then he is the only source of holiness. So let's take a look at that then in terms of what we read so far in Colossians. And back in chapter 1, near the beginning, uh, we heard, beginning at verse 9, we heard this. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So, so in essence, Paul's prayer is that the people would manifest the holiness that they have obtained through Christ. All right. So, and as he demonstrates, they are holy. They've been given this holiness because they are the uh, they, they've come into contact with Christ, who is the first fruits of the dead, the firstborn of the dead. They have this holiness through baptism when they've been given God's holy name. Um, and what Paul wants in Colossians is for them to manifest that holiness. And we'll talk a little bit later about why it's important for them to manifest that holiness. But then take a look at, at what we studied last week in chapter 2. We had these, you may recall, these three sections, chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, these three different things, these three different opponents that the, that the Colossians might be facing. One was that they would be led astray by philosophy and human traditions and the elementary spirits, of this world, these things are uh, other attempts at holiness, right? So, what's the point of philosophy, except uh, of, of empty philosophy, except to obtain holiness by perfecting our intellect, right? To access God's holiness by somehow raising ourselves to that level, or um, you know, the elementary spirits of the world. There are all these. Uh, at the at the time, all of these pagan deities who supposedly had some some component of holiness which the people could access through superstition or through rites and, and what, what have you. But that holiness is not, is not genuine. It's not holiness because it's not according to Christ. And the reason why Christ is the source of holiness, we hear in verse 9 of chapter 2, For in him, and I'm sorry, I don't have this printed in front of you, so you have to take my word for it that this is what Paul wrote. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So Christ, this man, is... God, which means that he is holy, he's holy, and that holiness has been united with human flesh, right? So the fact that Christ, who is God, took on human flesh means that humanity has access to God's holiness. God's holiness has become available to us through Christ. Then also we have in verses 11 and 12 this, this argument against circumcision. Circumcision made with hands, was supposed to make you holy, according to the Jews. Paul says, no, the holiness that we acquire is through a circumcision of the heart, a circumcision made without hands. 
baptism, washing with water and God's word. God's word, which is, you know, Christ uh, incarnate, um, that's what makes us holy, coming into contact with that. And then finally, verses 13 through 15, the forgiveness of sins, the canceling of our debt. So what, would, what disqualifies us, what would make us unholy is our failure to live up to God's holy standards. But here Paul says, no, that, that failure, that debt has been taken away. It's been nailed to the cross. So what the fault that we had, our unholiness, has been crucified with Christ, which means that we inherit Christ's holiness. All right? Does all that make sense? So I think, I think it's helpful, especially as we proceed, to think about Colossians in terms of holiness. The question at stake is, how do you obtain holiness? And in that regard, who are you going to listen to about holiness? Are you going to listen to what the world says about holiness? Or are you going, or are you going to listen to what God says about holiness? All right? So now, um, that was a lot. I realized, so I, I didn't drink any coffee yesterday, but I drank some this morning. And I'm operating at warp speed here. So let me slow down and ask you a question and let you do some talking. What, um, just to reflect, why is holiness important? Why does anybody care about being holy? Why do you care about being holy? Okay. So now that's a very, that, that's a very righteous answer, right? So God, we, we, we want to be holy because God is holy, right? Right, okay, so he sets the standard for holiness. Okay, but what about, um, what if you don't care about God? You're, okay, you're in trouble. <laughs> I can't argue with that. Let's see. Okay, yeah, there's something selfish about, about our desire for holiness in some ways. And part of what we, um, it, it, in, a, in a sort of, the way things can go wrong, we desire to be holy for our own sakes. Um, and this comes, this comes, you know, we think about all the tragedies and um, failures and trouble that we encounter in life. So if things are going well for us, if things are going um, perfectly and we feel like things are going our way, we, we, we often don't care much about holiness. But when, you know, when we encounter the realities of life, the fact that sin has entered the world and there's, there's consequences for sin, which is death and all of the, the trouble that we encounter, um, we have to ask the question. We're, we're compelled to ask the question. You know, it's the question that we ask when, somebody, when, when a beloved person dies, right? What, is, what does all of this mean? Why did this happen? And what's the way out? What's the solution to this problem? And the answer that we give one way or the other generally that humanity has always given is, well, we ought to aspire to some sort of, some sort of perfection or holiness. Um, and that's what's at stake here in Colossians. Um, you know, holiness is a good thing, um, but it's only good if you get it from something that's genuinely holy. So we can strive after holiness all we want on our own steam, um, but unless our source of holiness is genuine and divine, um, we're, we're going to fall short. We're going to come up short and we're, ha- we're going to have no solution to the problem you know, of, of, of death or of evil or of tragedy. Okay, all that by way of introduction. Let's take a look here, um, beginning at verse 20. So now you have the text in front of you. Any questions? Okay. 
Let me read for you verses 20 through 23. And this is, this is really continuing the idea that Paul ended with um, in the last section we read. So he just finished by saying, um, don't let anyone disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, or in questions of food and drink and festivals and new moons and Sabbaths, dates and seasons. Um, these things are a shadow. Paul continues going on here, verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world... Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These things have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So this is really central to Paul's critique of false attempts at holiness, right? So you have these regulations, do not taste, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are the, you know, the pharisaical laws, the taking God's commands and, and pushing them further, trying to, trying to make a hedge around sin so that you don't, so that you never, uh, so that you, you know, you can keep yourself safe by, by, uh, by doing, by going above and beyond. But what does Paul say here? Those things are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So you can try as hard as you want, and you can try even harder than, you can try and do things that God doesn't even ask you to try and do in, the, in, the, in, in an attempt at, at, at generating this self-made holiness, but it does you no good. It doesn't stop the indulgence of the flesh. And Paul lays it out here. Why, why are these things, for instance, these regulations, these pharisaical regulations, why are these things of no value. Why don't they help us in stopping the indulgence of the flesh? In be, why don't they help us in becoming holy? They're not from God. Not from God. That's always the, the starting place, right? And what does it mean? What, it, what does it mean if they're not from God? What's their character? They're not holy, they're not holy right? So if something's not from God, it's common. If, if it's not if it's not commanded by God or used by God in particular, it's a common thing. It's common. It has no holiness inherent in itself. It hasn't received holiness from God. So, you know, the sacrament and baptism, these things, God has told us, these things are holy. If you, if you use these things the way I, I've given them to you, you're coming into contact with God's holiness. But other things that are common and don't have God's holiness, they're perishable. That's what Paul says here, right? These things perish. They don't, they don't have this lasting impact. Um, it, may, it, it may feel like you're, you're accomplishing holiness. They have the appearance of wisdom, but they're, but they're not. Laura? Also distract us away from the true holiness. Absolutely, right. So you can spend all your time you know, fussing about, uh, about these kinds of things. The Pharisees did this. They, right, they came up to Jesus' disciples and said, why don't they wash their hands before they eat? Right? I think that, um, let's take a look at some, one of those episodes here. I've got a note on my page. Matthew chapter 15 verses 10 through 20, is one of those kinds of episodes. Jesus says, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. So the Pharisees were all concerned about putting clean things into their bodies, right? So the dishes have to be clean, their hands have to be clean. Jesus says, no, it's not what goes in that makes you clean or unclean, it's what comes out. And Jesus says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, 
These are def what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. To, to be concerned about those things is to distract from what genuinely concerns holiness and unholiness. What comes, in, what comes from the heart. That's what we ought to be paying attention to. Okay? Is this making sense? Am I going too fast? No. Okay. All right. Then I can go faster. <laughs> All right. The, and and, and you, you hit the nail on the head there, Laura. If these things are of no value in, in, in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, but we still trust in them, then not only are they of no value, but they are damnable, right? They kill us. So if you trust in something which is not from God, which is not producing holiness, which is not maintaining your holiness, then you are, you're fighting against God. You're putting something else first. You have an idol. All right? Good. Any questions? Yes, Lindsay. Good. All right, so what's, so, so, um, what's the difference between the kind of things that Paul is talking about here? Do not taste, do not handle, do not touch. These pharisaical regulations. And for instance, let's take fasting. What's the difference? Fasting is commanded by God. Fasting is expected by Jesus. So right there, we're in good shape no matter what. Because Jesus says it, let's do it. All right? We, we can't go wrong. Um, what else? Anything, Penny, did you have another comment? Yeah, sometimes with fasting, as I understand it, it's not just the self-denial, but it's to give you time. Rather than taking the time to eat a meal, I'm going to take the time on my knees instead. Right. So you're doing something yeah. better. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the thing about fasting and the thing about other disciplines, Christian disciplines, is that they can go terribly wrong. Like This was a part of, the, part of Pastor Brzezik's Bible study. They can go terribly wrong. So if you think that you are a better person because you fast more than your neighbor, right? Then you're, you've got it wrong, right? But if you fast because it gives you time, it, it, gives, you, it gives you opportunity to reflect on your, care, on your nature, your sinful nature, and to give your gifts to other people and to spend time in prayer and devoted to God's word, then what that fasting is doing is pointing you to Christ. Nowhere else It's pointing you to Christ. It's not a thing in itself it's useful because it points to Christ. And, that, and I think that that's, that's really the problem here with what Paul's talking about. Um, these things, this self-made religion, is supposedly the thing in itself. Simply doing these things makes you holy. What we uh, understand from what Jesus teaches is that things don't make you holy. It's God who makes you holy. And when we're devoted to God, I mean, we, we do all kinds of things to, to strengthen and encourage that devotion. But ultimately, we never forget that our holiness comes from God. Not from anything we're doing, but from God. So being obedient and fasting is important and beneficial because it directs us to receive our holiness from God. Does that answer the question? Okay. All right. Good. Anything else? Let's take a look then at chapter 3. And the, um, the, so the tone changes a little bit here. Paul has been, to this point, to the end of chapter 2, addressing these false sources of holiness. Get your holiness from God, from nowhere else. And Paul now really kind of summarizes this up. Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, 
seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So Paul's instruction boils down to this. Seek the things that are above, which means seeking the things that pertain to Christ. So, you know, it's this directional thing. Heaven isn't really up there, but it's the way we talk about it. You seek the things that are above, the things that are heavenly, which is where Christ is. And where Christ is, there is God's holiness and our humanity joined with that holiness, right? So in Christ, we have this ultimate, this, this perfect union of humanity and divinity, of, of, of humanity and of human flesh and God's holiness. So when we seek the things that pertain to Christ and we look where Christ is, to receive our holiness, then we're, we're sure to receive it. If we look anywhere else, we, we miss the mark. But in Christ, we have the perfection of, of this holiness for us. So it's specifically for our sake that God came to, to earth, became man, and took on human flesh. Um, it's, it's so that we can obtain this holiness as well. Um, and uh, as, as has to do with the, the, the idea of fasting and Christian discipline, you know, none of this is... Um, it's sort of a, in a magical or superstitious way. So it's not, it's not as though, um, so, you know, we have this, these great episodes in, like, for instance, in Mark, um, there's the story of the woman with the flow of blood, blood, right? How does that story go? Do you remember? She comes up to Jesus and touches his, the, the corner of his garment. What did she say? But what did she say to herself? Do you remember? If only I touch the corner of, if only I touch his garment, touch his robe, I will be healed. And then Jesus, so she's healed, and Jesus says, you know, what happened? And um, then he says to her, woman, your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you well. So it wasn't, it wasn't just that, um, it wasn't just that she touched Jesus. There was nothing magical about Jesus's robe. And it wasn't just some superstition like holding a rabbit's foot. But it was that she trusted that Jesus wanted to save her, that Jesus wanted to bless her. That's the substance of her faith, and it was, uh, it was executed. Her faith was acted out by seeking contact with, that, with Jesus and his holiness and his salvation, right? So that's what we mean here. When, when we say seek the things that are, that are above, it's not just like, like with fasting, it's not just for their own sake, but it's for the sake of pursuing Christ, for being, in, being, expressing our faith in Christ and trusting in his promises. Does, that, does all that make sense? It's, it's, there, there is, as with most things, um, especially in the Christian faith, there's always the risk that things, um, that we go too far in one direction or another. And this is why, you know, Paul is, uh, you know, suggests that the, the Colossians ought to be taught with warnings and with, and with instruction. They ought to be admonished, and given proper instruction, because we, we, we have to walk this, we have to find this balance. And this balance is, is you know, the mystery of Christ, which, which has to be pursued, has to be, um, ha- the, the depths of that have to be plumbed. And that's what we do in Bible study and when we go to, when we go to church. So, yes, sir. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, um, 
You know, the central thing is un, undeniably her faith in Jesus um, to heal. So Jesus, this is what Jesus says. Your faith has made you well. And, and when we say faith is the central thing, faith is never, um, faith always has an object. So Christ is the agent of her, of her healing. He is the one who, who carries out her healing. Now, um, it's tough because a lot, of, a lot of the episodes that happen in the New Testament, the Gospels, the Book of Acts, these things are not, um, they're, not they're descriptive. They tell, us, they tell us how things are, but they don't necessarily tell us, you know, we, we, don't, have the, we don't know the reasons behind them or, or, or how things ought to be. So what we do know, I think that the best we can say about that is um, she trusted Jesus, and in her case, the expression of that trust was um, seeking to, to come into contact with him, which, which is a really general way of, of describing also what we do when we come to church, right? So we seek to come into contact with Jesus through word and sacrament. In her case, it was expressed by reaching out and touching his robe. Um, you know, uh, whether Jesus was interested in sort of testing her faith to see if she would come, you know, go to those lengths, I'm, it's tough to say. Um, occasionally, he does do that. He does put people... Um, he, does, he does sort of push them a little bit, right? He, 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 he works on them to strengthen their faith. In her case, I'm not, sh- I'm not sure. We can't, we can't say for sure. Marianne. Well, not unlike, you know, Doubting Thomas, you know, I think he needed to, maybe for other people's eyes, to realize that it's not so much his physical presence as, like you said, like faith. So. Well, right, and, and it's, I mean, it, so it, it, his physical pres- presence is, is um, really central to us. It's really central um, because it is, it is the, it, it's the fact of the incarnation that God does become physically present to us. Um, and that's what our faith trusts, right? That God has come into the world and made himself present. He's taken on human flesh so that we can touch him so that we can come into contact with him. Um, now, so, so the, the, the point to be made here, I think the key distinction, is that we come into contact with Jesus in the ways that he makes himself available to us, right? So in the case of the woman, he was available to her, you know, as he passed by, and her faith trusted that coming into contact with him in that way would save her. Now, for us, this means you know, all kinds of obvious things. How does Jesus make himself available to us, right? He comes in his very flesh and blood on the altar, right, and in our mouths. And that, uh, you know, so in, in that way, the episode of the woman with the flow of blood and our story every Sunday is identical. Those two stories are identical. Um, the, uh, the details are a little bit different, but we do exactly what she does. That's, and that's, that's the point to be made here. Okay? Steve? What are your thoughts about your kind of tying into your sermon this morning about first things first? Yeah. So, you know, seeking first Christ. Right. Then all good things flow from that. Yeah. So maybe the, the message is she sought out Christ first and then from that. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Right. Um, and, that's, and that's the. So. The expression, as, the expression of faith is, first of all, assent. So Jesus saying, you know, Jesus says, I love you and I want to bless you. And you say, yes, uh, okay, I'll take it. And then, and then you say, 
thank you. So that's the expression of faith. And um, the action that, that corresponds to that is going to Jesus for more or going to Jesus for the first thing, to, 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 to receive what he wants to give us done. Right, right. And it's not, you know, that the thing that, um, this, even that, even, uh, even the notion of hearing can become a little bit mystical or superstitious for us. But, but the, the interesting thing is, when, when, we, when we reflect on what exactly Jesus says to us, the content is, is terribly important. So what does Jesus say? It's not just that he talks. It's not just that he says something, but it is that he says, I love you, your sins are forgiven, you are holy, you are children of God. Um, otherwise, you know, it could just be, it could be anybody talking. But what he has to say is what produces faith, what saves us, and what directs us to receive his gifts in all the ways that he gives them to us, right? So he says, I forgive you. He says, take and eat. He says, uh, I baptize you, right? He says all of these things. And the content of what he says is, uh, is, is you know, what, what creates and strengthens our faith. Yes, sir? Right. Yeah. In, right. In all of this, in everything that Paul says, and, and we'll, we'll note this again when we hear from John Kleinick, if we get to. Um, <laughs> this is great. Great conversation. Um, the, in all of this, God, God is the one who acts. Okay, so we do, we do nothing. We don't even reach out and touch the corner of Jesus' garment without God giving us the faith to, you know, to, to pursue in that way, to, to reach out to Jesus in that way. So God is the one who does everything. God is the one who gives us his holiness in the first place. And then with that holiness, you know, that's the, that's the great thing which we, um, you know, we get to rejoice in as Christians is that with the holiness that God gives us, he also renews us. He, he renews our wills so that we desire that holiness. Right? So first... God gives us his holiness, and then we desire his holiness, okay? That's the, that's the right, that's putting first things first, right? That's the order in which things go, okay? Very good. Good questions, okay. Let's see what else we have here. Um, I want to ask you about verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you will also appear, appear with him in glory. And this is a tough question, um, or a, a tough notion for us, or this is, a, this is a source of much trial and affliction for Christians. What does it mean that our life is hidden with Christ? What does that mean? Marianne. Does it mean that we're supposed to, even when we do, um, do good things, we're supposed to do it in secrets that God gets the glory? Hmm. Hmm. I, well, that's certainly, you know, we, when we do good things, we give God the glory. Absolutely. I think Paul's going a little bit of a different way here. Um, but that's a good observation. Uh, yes? Could you run through the list of what we're talking about now? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it is this, it is this paradoxical thing which Paul brings to light here, that... Um, you know, all along he's been saying, you are this new creation, you are holy, you've been given God's gifts, and we look around and say, you know, really? Is that, is that, is that so? And Paul says, well, your life, 
this perfect life that you have in Christ is hidden with Christ. Um, so we see it with the eyes of faith, with, with the renewal of our, of, our, of our hearts and with the knowledge of God's will that we grow in. We see it and we rejoice in it and we repent of our shortcomings, um, but we cling to that with faith and we have this confidence, this hope that when Christ appears again, you also will appear with him in glory. So it's not, we're not, we're not um, bound to be in this state all along where we, where Jesus says something and we don't, we don't see it fully realized. Some, one day, it will be fully realized. And that means for us, you know, every, every, every Eucharist, every time we, we come together for the divine service, it's, it's this, you know, foretaste of this. Uh, of, of the revelation of God's glory. So there we have Christ living in us, Christ's perfection in flesh and blood, and, and someday, on the last day, we will be free from, you know, the hiddenness of our, of our holiness. It will be visible. Um, and that's something to look forward to, right? So as Christians who struggle against um, our unrenewed wills, right? The, the, so our wills are being renewed, but we still struggle against... Um, the sinful inclinations of our hearts, to look forward to the day when, when our holiness, you know, our, our actions, our, the manifestation of our, of our um, inheritance in Christ matches reality, um, that's something to look forward to. And that's the promise that Christ has given us. Bill. That's right. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so there's... The, Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And it's, and it's also, so it's, you know, we're, simul- we're, we're in this tension, dynamic tension, simultaneously sinners and saints, and we also are in this tension between God has given us all things now, but not, not yet, right? Now and not yet. It, um, and every, that's why we rejoice, you know, to receive the Lord's Supper, to receive God's gifts, because that's when we experience it now, in, in, you know, sort of the fullness of what God wants us to have in this life. Sure, sure, yeah, absolutely, right, right. So we, it, yeah, yeah, good. Okay, let's, uh, let's keep moving then. Verses, um, now verses 5 through 11, and then verses 12 through 14 are... They really have to be taken together. I'm not sure we're going to manage this, so um, try and keep it in mind what we talk about for next week when Vicar Uledalen takes over. But uh, let's at least try to get through verses 5 through 11 here. Let me read this to you, and then uh, there are a few things to say. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Okay, so there's a couple of things to note here. First of all, um, Paul is very, very specific here about 
you know, sort of this laundry list of sins, right? But there's these two lists. Um, the list in verse 5, and then the list that begins at the second half of verse 8. And if you take a look at the, so they're, they're both in orange. Hopefully that's helpful. Um, they're, they're both in orange. What's the relationship between those two lists? What's, what's different about them? How do they relate to one another? What, if you had to characterize those two lists of sins, what, what's going on there, Peter? Okay, good, yeah. So, um, and, and, and we might generalize that a little bit more. Um, so your body, yourself, you, sins that are directed against yourself, and with your mouth you sin against other people, right? So Paul here is, is first of all, sort of covering the scope of what destroys the body of Christ. So when we sin, when we, when we sin against our bodies, ourselves, we, who, who are the temples of the Holy Spirit, we undermine, um, we undermine what, what God has sewn together, knit together in Christ. And when we sin against each other, um, we, we tear apart the joints and ligaments that, that hold the body of Christ together. So that's why um, Paul has these two categories. Now, why do you think that Paul is so specific? Why does he list these things individually? Jody. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so great. How easy is it? You're, you're absolutely right. How easy is it, um, or how much, how much harder is it to be in denial? Um, so if somebody says, don't sin, and you say, okay. But somebody says, you know, don't do this or this or this or this or this, it's much harder to be in denial about, about you know, your shortcomings, your failures. Um, this is why... Uh, um, Individual com- confession and absolution is such a useful practice, right? Because when you come in and speak to the pastor and say, um, you know, these are the things that I've done, it, it, it in some ways puts, puts reality in your own mouth rather than just sort of saying, I'm, I'm a sinner, which is also salutary, but it's, it, it takes, it, it takes it, um, an extra step which is helpful or can be helpful. Um, and that extra step... As Paul's noting here, thinking about individual sins, thinking about particular things that afflict us, um, that tempt us, is helpful because um, it, it removes deniability, right? Can't say, no, no, I'm not guilty. Paul's saying here, these are ways that you are guilty. But Paul, um, notice what Paul says at the beginning of verse 5. He says, put to death, which is um, really dramatic language. So, it's not, it's, um, it's not just fight against or um, put, you know, uh, push to the side or uh, like the Pharisees do, build a hedge around these things, you know, in, you know make more rules to, to, to protect you. It's put to death. And um, that's really dramatic language and it, sometimes it's hard to sort of comprehend what's going on there. What do you, um, how do you put, here's, yeah, this is a tough question, so chew on this. How do you put these things to death? How do you put to death what is earthly in you? What's the means of execution? Confession. Okay. Good. Okay, good. And so let's, let's, let's flesh that out a little bit. Um, what happens when, what are we doing when we're confessing our sins? What, admitting them, okay. And where do our sins go? Okay, how? 
Okay. They go on the cross. Right. Absolutely. So, in confession, we um, put to death our sins by nailing them to the cross with Christ. We live lives... So, so putting to death these sins, putting to death sin, what is earthly in us, is means to live under the cross, to live with our, with, with our lives nailed to the cross. What, what is earthly in us nailed to the cross. Um, which, which then gives... So that's, that's useful in confession and absolution to think about, right? When we kneel down in church during the divine service and we look up at the crucifix, you know, that's the reason why it's before your eyes as you're, as you're in church, right? This is where your sins are being crucified or were crucified with Christ. So we're putting them to death. And this is not... Um, this isn't just sort of a, you know, every once in a while when, occasionally when I'm, when I'm really in trouble, do I put things to death. But it is, this is the life of a Christian. The life of a Christian is one of repentance, of putting to death what is earthly in us. Um, and that's why the cross is always before us. That's why the cross is useful to us. That's why, that's why Jesus on the cross is, is such a source of strength and comfort because um, there our sins have been put to death. All right? So we, so we direct ourselves to the cross. Any questions here? Okay, now I, I got off of my... And so let me get back here and make sure that I wrap everything up before we're done. Yes, sir. Okay. <laughs> oh, yes, I can. You can trust the new vicar. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Thank you all very, very much. I... Yes, absolutely. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you very much.